And no matter the industry, leaders need to hold these things dear. Who we serve, how we serve, why we serve. This is People, Process, Service, a Frontline Source Group podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to People, Process, Service. I'm Tyler Kern. Joining me, as always, is Bill Casco, founder, CEO of Frontline Source Group. Bill, thank you so much for being here. Of course. It's always good to get a chance to do these every week. I always have a blast. And our guest today uh, was welcome into the living room and homes of Dallas-Fort Worth residents for what, 30 years or so as a co-anchor of the 5, 6, and 10 p.m. newscasts on NBC5. And now he's working as the head of communications for the Tarrant County Criminal District Attorney's Office. It's Mike Snyder. Mike, thank you so much for being here. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for I'm, having me. I'm really excited. I got to be honest. I've known Mike for a long time, yeah. uh, but in a different type of a setting. And so just spending time right now listening to some of these stories, and it's just a crazy amount of information of, of stuff that you've been through that is just, it's just fascinating to me. I'm a repository of worthless information. No, it's, it's, it's great information. And I think it's stuff that, uh, uh, if we had enough time, it'd be an entire day of sitting here listening to things that are just fascinating to me. And so I was thinking about it earlier. I was just listening to him tell a story. I was like, I would listen to my describe a turtle race or something. Well, I, I don't know. Like, oh goodness. it's, it's crazy. Cause we're going to talk about people process service. Right. But I'm right. sitting here earlier and I went, I got all these additional questions. So before we even jump <laughs> in, I got to ask a few things. And so okay. I was going to hit you with a few. Ready? All right. How many years did you do the Jerry Lewis telethon? 27 years. Uh, that to me is, is unbelievable. I mean, that is such a, just a statement right there. You know, the thing that's really wild about Jerry Lewis, uh, I thought one year I was doing really, when I started, Channel 5 did uh, a telethon on the air that raised about $325,000. And I really thought we were killing it. You right. know, that was big money, right? And so we had this dinner and, and we raised $35,000 and I, and, and they had the anchor training for, for the, uh, uh all of the telethon anchors out in, in, uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, we're out at the Beverly Hilton and I walk over with this big plastic check and I give Jerry this check and he says, thank you. And I'm going, Hey, Hey, that's $35,000. And he says, uh, Mike, he says, add a zero to it and we'll talk. And I'm and, and and that was my first introduction. But over the years, Jerry Lewis and I became very, very good friends, and our telethon grew from that from that meager amount all the way up to my last one in 2011 of 3.25 million. Wow. And it was because these events take place all year long. And I got involved with the kids. I go to the camps. I go to the hospitals. I go to the research facilities. We do stories about those things because if people understand what they're investing in, your right. chances of prying more money out of their wallet is a lot better, right? So Jerry liked what I was doing and because I was doing a, a series of, of neuromuscular research and, and, and progress stories before the tele to lead up to the telethon every year. And we started pushing those out to other affiliates so that they could share my stories on the air because they're not my stories. I, I've, made a, I've made a career out of telling other people's stories. But what was really interesting, he asked me to help him come out and join the team to help train other television news anchors how to beg for money because that's why I'm a professional beggar. I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, I, I learned how to raise money from Jerry. But more importantly, I learned another tenet of, philo of philanthropy philosophy that I think is really, really important. He explained to me, he says, whatever you do in raising money, 
He says, remember why you're raising it and who it needs to go to. It's not about the party. It's about the purpose. And what he, what, what he was meaning by that was a mathematical equation. He said, if you ever do an event that cost more than seven cents to raise that dollar, he says, don't do it. Go do another event. If you have to pay more than seven cents on the dollar to raise that money, you're either not asking the right questions, you're not getting the, the in-kind donations, or the kinds of things that are necessary to generate that kind of revenue for your purpose. And he says, no one should be paid. He says, this is a volunteer effort. And I carried that forward into the creation in 2001 of the, uh, I, I was a member of the Air Power Council. We wanted to raise money for the families of deployed troops after 9-11. After mm-hmm. And that philosophy of, of making sure we maintained laser focus on the people who needed that money was important to us. And so we had this little gathering over at uh, a hangar at Meacham Field, and we raised about $28,000 that first night. And boy, I thought we were killing it, you know, because we had 300 people at, the, at, at, the, at, at what we called Skyball. And we took the $28,000 check on a big plastic card out to the air base, and we went up to the commander, and actually his captain out there, and uh, Paul Pierce is his name. Paul Payne, Paul Payne. And uh, I said, uh, Captain Payne, here's, and he was very gracious, loved the money that we gave. And it went to the family, the family readiness and, and morale and welfare funds. Because when they went from a, a base that was a regular Air Force base to a joint reserve base, they lost all of the permanent fixture that went around with the Air Force for deployments and repatriation. It was left to volunteers to do that job. Hmm. And what we learned was is that that $28,000 was just spitting gasoline on a fire because I went back a month later and I said, Captain Payne, how's that money holding out? Are we doing some good? And he says, oh, that money's gone. And I said, what, what do you mean it's gone? And he, says, and he says, well, he says, with the level of deployment we have right now, he says, we have 10,000 souls on the space, and 4,800 of them are deployed. All of our ships from the 136, they're gone. Uh, that's the, uh, that, the C-130s that are out there. And uh, he says, these kids get in trouble very quickly. When they're, when they're called in from the National Guard and, and from the reserves, they give up their civilian positions, and they lose up to 50% of, or more sometimes of their income. Some of them were putting professional careers, uh, accountants, lawyers, some doctors and those kind of things. They're completely on hold while they're gone, and that income dries up real quick. They get in trouble with their car payments, with their utility right. payments, right. Uh, anything else, putting food on the table. And uh, I said, well, how big is the need? And he says, I don't know. He says, we've never asked. He says, we're a brand new thing. This joint reserve base thing's brand new. So they had 36 units, and so we go out. And we, we did an ascertainment out of those 36 units. And we came back with a number two weeks later that they needed during this level of deployment $1.2 million a year wow. to help these kids. Oh, wow. uh, so I went back to the board and I said, we can't tell people we're raising money to help the families of deployed troops if we're not doing that because now we're having to say no more than we can say yes. And they said, well, what do, you, what do you think is necessary? And I said, we need an event with about 4,000 people, and we've got to raise $1.2 million in a night. And they said, great, you're chairman. Uh, so that's how I became chairman of the Air Power Foundation in Fort Worth and chairman of Skyball. Uh, the last Skyball, 
uh, was very, very fortunate, raised $3.15 million in one night. Wow. wow. Uh, mainly from, uh, we, we used to do that off of ticket sales and some corporate sponsors, and we kept growing the corporate sponsors within the military industrial complex uh, to, to do that. But, uh, and American Airlines is a huge partner, DFW Airport, all of the major players in, in the military industrial complex, uh, Lockheed, Bell, uh, Grand Magnetics. Right. I, I can go through the whole list, but the whole point of it is, that it all came back around full circle to Jerry Lewis's admonition to me. Do not spend more than seven cents on the dollar to raise that money. And that was my benchmark. And the people on my board used to scream, we can't do that. Yes, we can. So it kind of goes back to our whole people idea. Yeah. And the Jerry Lewis part is interesting because my thing, my next question was going to be, did you ever meet him? I mean, I would think you would have. And of course you did. <laughs> and he obviously influenced you. But your whole career has focused around people. It really, I mean, whether it has been from a TV side or mm. giving back, uh, and then even today and what you're doing. So w when you think about the, the, the person that influenced you in the beginning, that really was that inspiration to have you be involved with all this, is there someone that really stands out to you, someone that still maybe is in your life or something that made a difference? Well, he's only in my, mind, in my life and my mind, and that's my dad. Yeah. I'm the product of, of uh, a Jewish grandfather immigrant from Germany and an Irish Catholic immigrant grandmother from Cork, Ireland. Hence, you can understand why I'm a conflicted attitude guy. <laughs> um, and my grandfather, when he stepped foot uh, on Ellis Island, refused to speak German. Uh, but he didn't know any other language. And my grandmother, the, the, the agreement that he told us over the years was, your grandmother would teach me the language, I would provide for the family. And he became a fireman for the Frisco Railroad. And back then, those were steam engines. A fireman meant he was the guy scooping the coal, mm, putting right. it in the boiler. Right. And he rose eventually to become an engineer, drove the last steam engine for Frisco, and eventually became the chairman of the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers before he died. I look like him, sound like him, and uh, but my dad was the black sheep of the family. My grandfather was a rock rib Democrat and a union boss. My dad was an English professor, Republican, and had absolutely no freight to carry with my grandfather's politics, right. none. And so I'm, I'm, I'm living in a conflicted world here. But my dad, uh, to kind of foreshadow a little bit, spoke six languages, never stepped off the shores of this country. But while he was a, a professor at, at Southwest Missouri State University in Springfield, which is now Missouri State University, uh, he would go in between classes down to the language lab. My dad was gifted with, with uh, a photographic memory. And he would teach himself these languages. And it was incredible because among them was, was uh, claiming a little bit of heritage. He spoke Hebrew spoke Russian, wow. spoke Spanish, spoke Italian, spoke German, and he spoke some French. And the interesting thing about, uh, about that influence on me was he told me everything can be taken away from you in a flash, everything. But what you put between your ears and what you're able to compose and push out to people, no one can take that away from you. So if you use your wits that has the foundation in, in learning from something, uh, whether it's a book or a person or an experience, and you catalog that, keep it, and use it in the future, then you're going to be one of the richest people in the world. That influenced me incredibly because I did something that I 
when we all die, we're going to, you know, do I regret anything? Well, there is one thing I do regret, and I wish I had not uh, passed by. I didn't graduate from college. And the reason was, when I was 16 years old, my dad was a jack-of-all-trades, and one of the other things he did is had a, we had a skating rink in Springfield, Missouri. And they played organ music all <laughs> the time, except on Saturday. He let me be a disc jockey. And so I was spinning records, and the manager from KTTS Radio in Springfield was there with his daughter having a birthday party, and he says, uh, because I was playing disc jockey, and he says, uh, you sound pretty good. He says, you want to you come and do some replacement work for us at KTTS this summer when people are going to make sure, ah, no, I want to be a lawyer. I don't want to be a disc jockey. And uh, he says, well, go to Kansas City, take this third-class radio telephone operator's license, and, and if you pass, he says, come down, and you can just do this for a summer. If you don't like it, fine. You've made a little bit of money, and uh, you'll have this, this third-class radio telephone. And I said, well, I don't know anything about electronics. And uh, my dad said, well, we'll take you down to Arnold's Music Store, which is also a radio store. And they had a book in there that had all of the tests with the questions answered in it. So I memorized it going to Kansas City as my dad drove me up there. I got my third-class radio telephone operator's license. You had to have that to read the transmitter. That was the whole reason to have that. So I come back, and I, I, I started at KTTS in the very slots where the people were going on vacation. Small town, okay? They didn't, they didn't have a, a, a graveyard shift. We signed off at midnight. Okay. So I was doing the afternoon drive shift. <laughs> and the guy who was doing that that was on vacation didn't come back. Wow. And at age 16 I inherited his show. Wow. I sound today like I did then. My voice has never changed. And so I stayed with that all the way through my sophomore year at Southwest Missouri State University. And then I was getting restless because I didn't like being a disc jockey. I wanted to do the news. I knew that a friend of mine in the newsroom was applying for a job out of town, and so I knew that there was going to be a spot available. So I went to the news director and I said, you know, I'd really like to join the news department if there's ever a vacancy back here, knowing there was going to be because my friend was being very aggressive and trying to get out. And he said, and I'll remember his name till I die. His name was Wes Wise. He says, Snyder, he says, you need to stick being a disc jockey. You're not made to be a newsman. <laughs> And so that night, I this was back in the days of, of uh, carbon paper. I saw my friend throw away a piece of carbon paper in the trash can. So I went back and I found in there and I read where he was going or where he was sending his application and his tape. So I took the same address, wrote my own letter and my own resume, <laughs> went to the teletype machines. That, that Back then we had thousands of machines in there clicking away in a clicky clacky noise that was real and pull it off and and then i created my own little newscast and i sent it off to keli in tulsa oklahoma a couple of days later i get a call asking me to come to tulsa for an interview i go to tulsa and i'm, I'm a native of tulsa i was born in tulsa so i i come in there so i know a lot about tulsa and, and i was talking to him about it and they offered me the job on the spot and my friend was furious but i go back and 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 i got the job. This comes to exemplify how into your, into your plan, people, purpose, how I became a professional journalist. When I went to Tulsa two weeks later, I'm signing my company papers like everybody does. I was for the first time getting my own Blue Cross Blue Shield application and all that stuff. 
And the news director comes bursting into the to the office there, and he says he has a little Norelco tape recorder, a microphone, an Electro Voice 635. For those that are listening that have never seen one, you can drive a nail with it, and it'll still work. It's that that hardy of a microphone. And he gave me this thing. It was it was a two way radio, but it looked like one of those military things. It looked like a big huge brick. And he says. Go down there to to, to to Fort Worth City Hall right now. He says, Russell Means has taken over uh, Tulsa City Hall. He has uh, kidnapped the mayor, and he has set a bonfire around the, the, the flagpole and turned the American flag upside down. He says, get down there right now. And he says, and he says send your actualities back on this. And I'm going down to my car and getting in there. I'm going, this is my first and last day on the radio as a newsman because I had no idea what an actuality was. <laughs> For for translation, that's a soundbite. <laughs> okay, and I had no idea how it was going to get from that Norelco tape recorder into this. There was a little bag of toys that came with a tape recorder, and in there was a cup that that you screwed off the bottom end. This was back when telephones had pieces that you could uh, take apart, take apart the the bottom yeah, speaker the part mouthpiece, it, yeah. and and put this on there, and they had a plug, and you could plug and play the the tape recorder over the airway over over the two way radio back to the station. I didn't know all of this until I arrived at Tulsa City Hall, and I'm going, okay, how am I going to get out of this? And so I figured that imitation is the best form of flattery. So I look down there, and, and I'm seeing television stations, other radio people there, and I'm going, wherever their mics are, mine's going there too. So I did that, and then I had a little pocket transistor radio, and I was listening to KRMG, which was the news station, news and talk station in Tulsa. And I was listening to this guy over here do his report, then I would go back and imitate him and use a similar soundbite, not exactly the same. And I got back, and, and we were getting around, and I noticed he was about to leave, and I confided in him. And I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I've been, I told him what I'd been doing that day, and I was imitating him. And I said, I need your help. And this is a competitor, but this is another human being who sees another human being in need of something and has enough guts or uh, or at least enough humility to ask and tell him, I don't know this stuff. Can you help me? And he did. And he says, just follow me. Let me tell you what we do here and how we do this. And he walked me through the process. And he stayed when he was off the clock and helped me through that day. Fast forward about 20 years. And I'm doing. I'm, I'm in between shows at Channel 5 between the 6 and 10. I get a telephone call and he says, hey, Mike, can I come down and watch the show? And I said, absolutely. Come on down here. And, I, and we had him in, into the room. And as he walks in the newsroom, people are going, whoa, he's here. He's my guest. Come on in, Bob. His name is Bob Lozier, one of the founders of CNN. Wow. In later years. Uh, he had asked me uh, with Jerry Levin, who had, who had became one of the founders of CNN, who was a news director, several removed in television for me, um, had asked me to come to work at CNN, and and I dissed that and said, CNN, what the heck is that? <laughs> you know, chicken noodle news or what? You know, and and so uh, I passed that opportunity, but I think I, I I did the right thing at that particular time. But my my point is, my entire career is littered. And I say littered. In, in a good way, with examples of me not knowing what I'm doing, watching somebody who knows what they're doing, confiding in people and learning what they know, and then incorporating that in myself. You have to, you, you have to realize at some point in your own professional development what you don't know. If you don't know what you don't know, you're in trouble. 
Right. You need to you, you need to be able to get a firm grasp on that, and then seek the people who know. Give if you if you can't get a formal education, you can't get the 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 pieces from a formal setting that you need in a school or whatever. You've got to find a way to get those pieces into in into your brain and into your body so that you can 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 function. And I became very skilled at that. I became adept at adapting, and. I've been very, very lucky because it's been those people in my life at various different points along the way, Jerry Lewis being one of them, who helped me along the way to be able to to make the transition from amateur news reporter to a professional storyteller. Right. Because the business that I was in, and that I'm still in for, for the most part, is storytelling. It doesn't matter what brand of microphone you use, what kind of electronic equipment you possess, and what kind of apparatus is used to distribute what you do. It's the story that you tell. Uh, are you compelling? Is it is it relevant to anything? You know, is does it have some degree of urgency to it? And if you can if you can incorporate those kind of things, even when you're just talking to a group of people, and you give them understanding of any one little piece of something that you're delivering to them. It's amazing what people will do with a small tidbit of encouragement. It's, it's amazing. And uh, I've, I've been very, very lucky in my life that I've run into those people right. along my way who have returned that favor to me. Was, was the time at NBC, or Channel 5, here for the Dallas-Fort Worth area, was, was that the right amount of time for you? I mean, you know how sometimes you go through life and you think it's time to do something different. I, mean, I was offered a number of times during my career the opportunity to go to San Francisco, to go to New York, and s several places. And I explored that notion. But I, I came back to a realization that I had, my own observation is that this was a vagabond business. People spend two, maybe four years in a place and move on. Keep climbing that ladder. Keep climbing that ladder. And I was also watching them go through divorces, angry children, all kinds of things that, from a family perspective, was destructive. And I came to a conclusion that I wanted to plant myself somewhere that I thought was significant, where I could do some good, where I could progress, where I could make plenty of money and raise a family so my kids, because I moved six times during my elementary, junior high, and high school years. High school, I was lucky to spend all four years in one place. But before that, we moved schools, it seemed like, every other year. Uh, so I didn't have a core set of friends. Uh, one of the reasons I sent my kids, uh, the, that we decided to send both of our girls to Oak Ridge, for example, in Arlington, is because they could stay in the same school setting with the same set of friends from pre-K all the way to 12th grade. Right. And I think that, that, that our thinking and our methodology and our planning is paying off in, in, in spades with, with our girls because they're rooted with a good set of people, with a, a good set of, of teachers, administrators, uh, people who really care about them, and they have that as a foundation going into their university years. I, I wanted to stay here. Dallas is, is, is Dallas and Fort Worth and the, the North Texas area is an amazing place. It's vibrant. It's alive. It's it's. It's what the United States, I, I think, should emulate in terms of the way that we think about people, the way we think about industry, the way we talk about business, the way we talk about our families. It's rooted in certain values that I think are missing in some other places in the country. And I wanted to raise my family here. Right. So 
Channel 5 gave me that opportunity, and God bless them for keeping me around for 30 years. I, I, I got to see the world on Channel 5. Well, uh, I was going to say that. I mean, you, you really influenced more people than you might even realize or understand. I mean, there were, you really touched the lives of so many people in so many different ways with in a different manner than, mm-hmm. than any of us ever have an opportunity to do. And so we're, that the time frame sometimes isn't necessarily a bad thing as far as there's not a length on it, right? No. A similar way of asking that question is, well, didn't you get stale? No. You, whether you're planted at the same company for 30 years or, or, or three years or three weeks, the point is you make it as relevant, as interesting, as vibrant as you want to make it. It isn't that the company or that a city becomes stale. Dallas will be here long after all of us are gone. Dallas doesn't get stale. You allow yourself to get stale in the topics you discuss, in the people that you see, in the places you go, the things you eat, the whole the whole sphere of influence that you allow yourself to be influenced by. To me, it was important to stay in a place and learn about it. Right. When I started at the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office, uh, and that's the criminal district attorney's office. There are two different kinds. I thought I knew a lot. I was kind of smug in my in my own head of how much I knew about the Tarrant County Courthouse, right? Uh, I got to tell you, on a daily basis, it is like drinking from a fire hose. The stuff that I'm learning, the things that I'm seeing that I never saw as a reporter because I didn't open my eyes in, in the way that they've been opened by some people who are very – I'm very, very lucky to be working with a group of people who are – light years smarter than I am. Uh, working with, uh, with Sharon Wilson, who is a brilliant district attorney who has started a lot of programs that have brought not just good prosecution down, but services to people in Tarrant County that need it. Elder fraud, intimate partner crimes, uh, a bunch of things that have happened in Tarrant County that she, she's been able to address. And I'm very lucky to work with those people. But my point is, is that back to my old motive of how I've learned my entire life, it's back looking at how these prosecutors are pursuing cases, learning case law, learning how strategy is built on a case, learning how this case should not be adjudicated. We should go to deferred prosecution because these people deserve another chance. They got caught doing something that they shouldn't be doing, but they don't deserve and the taxpayers don't deserve to pay for these people to learn their lesson. Let them learn their lesson by doing community service and go through a deferred prosecution plan. My point is, is that Going back to Channel 5, for example, over these 30 years, it never got stale to me. I loved every day that I came in there because every day was something new. If the news itself is not new every day and, and the, the topics that you're discussing are not nuanced and, 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 and really relevant to the people in the community, then you're allowing it to get stale. I, I can't deny that I look at the news six and ten these days and lament over the day when when we did a different mix of stories. It's a different animal today Mm -hmm. than when I was there when I left in 2010. Uh, And that's not to say that I'm better than they are or that they're better than me. I think that that we have trivialized a lot of what's going on. I don't I don't see television news or radio news for that matter or newspapers as police blotters. That kind of crime has gone on forever. We just happen to notice it. It's also a lot easier to stand in front of a burning building and do two minutes of consumed time than it is to do an investigative story that right. lasts two minutes. But that's where I think you, you and, and we're on the outside looking in, right. right? But to us, it's like you, you had that great opportunity to kind of live that dream 
that that opportunity that we were mm-hmm. there, and and what you're doing today is it's almost that next step in how you're helping people again in a whole different manner that I think is fascinating because you, you just like you said it opened your eyes to something totally different that's out there that you don't realize. Right. Well, I told Sharon, uh, and I, I and that's that's our criminal district attorney Sharon Wilson. I told her that I think that one of the reasons that I really like coming to work is I feel like I'm doing something here. I I feel like I spent 30 years at Channel 5 training for this job at the prosecutor's office. Uh, We just finished uh, a set of stories that that launched yesterday on our our YouTube channel about uh, edible trouble. A lot of kids, and adults for that matter, do not know that what is legal in Colorado and Oklahoma in terms of edibles, and I'm talking marijuana, THC-infused edibles, are legal there, but you come across the border and they're not here. To give you an example of just how serious this is, and and a lot, and we're getting a flood of cases in now. Kids bring this stuff back, adults bring this stuff back, and they start sharing them at school in the office. One gummy bear, which weighs less than a gram, is a felony in Texas. Wow. Two years in state jail if you're convicted. You bring back say, four or five gummy bears or a box of of designer chocolates, or you come back with a root beer infused with 300 milliliters of, uh, or it's a 300 milliliter THC infused root beer, fruit drink, or something like that, that's 20 years. Come back with a one pound bag of THC infused cookies, and it's five to life. And people don't realize, because when you take, for example, Again, this is how much stuff I'm learning on a daily basis. A four-ounce bag of marijuana is a misdemeanor. Boil that four-ounce bag of marijuana down to its THC resin, and it's under two grams, but it's a felony. Wow. Because it's a controlled substance at that point, it's THC. If you get four grams of THC, it's a Class two felony and you're going to jail for 20 years. Do you know how many grams of THC there is in a pound of cookies? I'm afraid to ask, to be honest. <laughs> 450 grams make a pound. And because it's cooked in with the butter, the, the, the THC-infused butter, the weight of the entire package is there. And that, at 400 grams, is a Class three felony punishable by five to life. Wow. So. When people bring in the edibles, they need to know that, that when you can pick them up in Oklahoma at, at the dispensaries there, and by the way, they, you're supposed to have a medical card, <laughs> that and 100 bucks gets it. It's not, not any problem. Colorado, <laughs> you don't even need that. You just walk right. into any of the stores. And uh, I'm not taking issue with whether it should or should not be, be legal. I have my, my own personal opinion. But I'm telling you, Texas law does not see it the way that they do. And you bring it back. Well, we started a series. Sharon says, you know, Sharon's working on the notion of uh, deferred prosecution programs for people. We had a grandmother who was arrested at DFW Airport with a two-pound bag of brownies. She's got herself a, a class two felony coming in here. And and they chose not to prosecute it. But the point is that we did this series of stories, not to toot our horn or anything, but to basically tell people, be aware of what the law is. We're not going to give you legal advice as to whether you should or should not bring it in. But be aware, if you do, this is what happens if you get caught. And make no mistake, in Dumas, Texas, you can go out there and the DPS is on the side of the road waiting for young people coming back from ski trips. 
and they're up there right outside the casinos where there are also marijuana dispensaries, and they're waiting as you come across the Red River. You get stopped with that stuff, and the defense attorneys in Dallas and Fort Worth are doing the land office business defending these people who are getting arrested for the very first time for possession of controlled substances, not just possession of marijuana. And that communication part is something that's been very important to me because I'm telling a story. I've learned something that, that is important to what we think is, is important to the community, but a lot of people don't know. So we put it into that fashion and into a, a PSA. Uh, back in the old days, we used to call them public service announcements. We just say it's an alert from the, from the district attorney's office. Here's what's going on. We did the same thing with trying to convince the, the county commissioners in Tarrant County to understand that as the population of Tarrant County expands exponentially, that the actual volume of crime also expands right along with it. And if you don't expand the apparatus with which you prosecute that crime and keep this community safe, then you're setting us up. In the words of an SMU professor, Dr. Bernard Weinstein, who is an economist, and he used to be the economist for the U.S. Banking, uh, for the U.S. Senate Banking Committee, who, who told me, he says, you're perched to become another Chicago. Right. And we don't want to do that. So storytelling is very, very important for me. And telling stories to people who can use that information and make a better decision based upon what they hear is what's important for me. And I think I've been trained in 30 years to do this story yeah. or to do this this job. Well, and it goes back. It's a service. At yeah. the end of the day, I mean, you really are. And that's where that whole, the whole thing kind of goes full circle, it, dealing with the people. Under, you've got a process you go through, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, to understand all this. And then you give this service back. And it's just, to me, it's just unbelievable. I mean, the fact that it, it, something right there in front of us and you're mm -hmm. looking at it today going, I didn't have a clue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I guess one of my questions is, because I've, I've, I spent some time working in news and that sort of thing, and you meet people that approach stories differently. Some people have a hard time keeping the humanity in a story because it affects them too much, whereas some people prefer to keep, you know, think about the fact that every story they're doing is about human beings. How did you approach stories as you, as you approach the storytelling, kind of like what you're talking about? When I'm out covering a story, the first thing that comes to my mind is, what would somebody on the other side of that television camera receive from you? What is it that, that they're hearing as you're talking? What is it that they're seeing? I try to put myself in a viewer or listener's seat every time. Because if you, if you try to do it in a, in a capsule or, or in a vacuum where you're hearing your own voice and your own echo, as opposed to imagining somebody sitting there and telling them this story, as opposed to writing a script and reading the script and that's the way it is, uh, approach to doing news. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you an example, I was in, I, I was in St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, in January of 1992. Uh, that should be an important date for you because on December 26th of 1991, the Soviet Union fell. Mm -hmm. We were there doing a documentary. Uh, Katina Simmons uh, was our producer, and uh, we were doing a documentary on Catherine the Great exhibit that was coming here. And our uh, the man who was our consultant on the story was Frederick Schmidt, who was the curator uh, at that time of the Arm and Hammer Museum in Los Angeles that had the exhibit as it was coming. But we went to the source in Russia to 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 basically 
gather what is important about Catherine the Great exhibit, why it's important to go see, and that kind of thing. Well, of course, in, in our course of traveling to Russia, the Soviet Union's falling apart. Right. We arrive in, in, in St. Petersburg, and St. Petersburg is a town of four and a half million, and I call it a town on purpose, not a city, a town of four and a half million people. And so I'm expecting a very nice international airport when we arrive, and we land on, on a Delta 727 coming out of Frankfurt, and we land there. And as we come off the runway, we're on the, we're on the apron going toward somewhere, not a terminal. We're going somewhere, and I'm seeing all these broken airplanes littered all along the sides of the taxiways. And suddenly our plane comes to a stop, and I turned to Frederick, and I said, is something wrong? Because I was really worried all of a sudden because Soviet Union's falling apart. We have no idea what's going on. Are we being hijacked? What's going on? He says, no, they're going to bring a shuttle out to get us. And I said, oh, okay, great. <laughs> 30 minutes goes by, and uh, I said, oh, look, man, everything's broken around here. Look at that. It's, it's a school bus being pulled by a tractor. He says, that's not a school bus. That's your shuttle. <laughs> so we get – and, and they they had no stairs for us to get off. They had to lower the, the steps out of the back of the airplane, 727. Right. You know, a three-holer. And so we're coming out of the back, and we're getting on this thing, and they pull us up to what was the terminal. It's it's like a 200 by 200 block building and no signs, no anything. It was the, uh, the most Spartan thing I'd ever seen in a, in a for a major city. We go inside, and we're waiting for about an hour for our, our luggage to be carted in. And <laughs> think back to World War II, dusty rail yards, in, in, in Nazi Germany, and you see these flat iron carts with these huge steel wheels. That's what they were bringing our our luggage in with. And we had three camera crews, including a 70-millimeter film crew, so we had lots of stuff. We had to unload it ourselves. Our ride did not uh, – our, our transportation didn't show up. Our interpreter didn't show up. We had nobody there. We were totally uncontrolled. I could have brought anything into that country, anything. And – Finally, Katina gets on the phone, and she has to hire a Van Hool bus to come from St. Petersburg out to the airport to pick us up, and, uh, all for us and all for our, our equipment because we had a lot to, to carry. And I was not going to leave without getting my passport stamped with the CCCP. I wanted the, the last vestiges of the Soviet Union right. on my on, – on, and Frederick says, they won't stamp your card here. And I said, what do you mean they're not going to stamp my passport? And he says, you'll have to pay him. He's up on that pedestal over there. And so we had been warned that we had to have grease money when we went there. So I had a camera bag with $5,001 bills. And so I go up there and I flash a dollar bill. I'm just going, yeah, yeah. And so it took me $10 to get my, my passport stamped. And then we finally got downtown. I can tell you stories and stories and stories about that. But here's, the, here, here's to your point yeah. of how you tell that story. How do you tell the story about residents of the Soviet Union in Leningrad, which is which is uh, what what the the town's real name of St. Petersburg was. And so I'm I'm stretching and and after we had gone to a medical facility and and seen and done a story about the vaunted medical uh, apparatus there, a doctor had come downstairs as we were getting in our car to leave and she says, you want to see what it's really like. She gets in our car, which was a Neva and it was a little four-door Renault by any other name. We've got six people crammed in this thing, plus equipment. 
The circus ride. And we're dri- yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was a clown car. Yeah. That's yeah. exactly yeah. what it was. Yeah. And so we're following the trolley line because they have no maps there. Because remember, information is power and map is information. So we're following the trolley line out for what seemed like ever. And we get to this apartment complex. It's in a U-shape, very big, very crumbly. And we're in the courtyard, and and we're going up to the third floor where uh, this doctor is making a house call to this woman. And we go into the chase area where the where the stairs are, and it's open sewer pipes, and the smell was just beyond toleration. And we're going up third floor, and the door is rotted off, and there's just a leather flap there. And she's rapping on the door, and out of Doctor Shivago steps this guy in a white in a white t-shirt black dungarees tied with a rope and a big handlebar black mustache and hair tied back and i'm going i have gotten in a time machine and i've gone back to the 30s and 40s and so she says don't be worried these are friends uh and he says nothing worries me anymore come on in and there are four families in a four room apartment we walk through their common kitchen with all their stacks of dishes, night, nicely neat, but each family has their own stack. We go back to where this woman is in the room. She is gnarled by, by diabetes. Mm-hmm. And she's coming in there, and she's very delicately uh, using her. She, all she had to examine this woman was a stethoscope and a little neurological hammer that also has a prick on the end so they can test the feeling. And we'd been there about an hour, and, and and we were all over their little area there. She had a bed in the corner. If you can imagine, this room's by 20 by 20 about. And there was a four-poster bed that had drapes on it in a corner. There was a, a chest of drawers there with a picture of her daughter in a military uniform. There was another chest over on the other side with a, a television on it, and then an armoire. That's their entire worldly goods stored in that room. And they had a little tiny table and two chairs. And we'd been talking for about 45 minutes or so when we were in there. And then out of the blue, in perfectly understandable English, the old woman turns to me and says, what do you think of Lenin? Well, first of all, I am absolutely confounded that she has not only heard but understood every word we've been saying in that room. Second, I had no way to answer that question. And my response was, as quick as I could make it, well, I— I don't really think much about Lenin. She says, oh, it would be much better if he were here. And I said, oh, you want it to go back the old way. You don't want, oh, and she says, oh, no, no, no. She says, I'm number 600 on the list to get a ground floor apartment. And if he was here, I would get down there. But she says, I will die in this room. And uh, I said, well, how long have you been here? She had been on that floor for 10 years. Wow. She had not been down from that room. But here's how we captured the essence of what had happened in Russia with this old woman in a room. I said, if Lenin was here, you'd get your ground floor, but you don't want to go back? She says, no, everything worth this. And she points to the wall where she has taped Catholic icons on the wall. And I said, what's that? And she says, freedom. Hmm. And, And I said, what do you mean freedom? She says, no one can tell me when to pray or that I can't pray or what I can say now. I can say anything I want. She points to her daughter over on the chest of drawers and says she died not for Russia or the Soviet Union. She died for freedom. And now I have it. And it's worth everything. There is no going back. And I'm going, my God, this woman is a prisoner on the, uh, on the third floor of this room, has been for 10 years, 
and she's giving me a lesson about freedom. And and it was it, it was amazing. I got a, a very similar lesson when I was in a train yard. I was told not to go behind the Astoria Hotel because that's where the, the train tracks were because there was a little bazaar going on back there. And they said it was too dangerous for us to go back there. Well, that's like telling a kid not to put their hand in the cookie jar. <laughs> right. So we go back there, and everybody is selling things from uh, a single candlestick to a pair of pants to a to this man comes up to me with a with a small sack of sugar and he comes up to me perfectly understandable english and we found a lot of people that can speak english there he says buy my sugar and i said i i don't need any. he says you think this is funny don't you and i said no i don't think it's funny i said i i find it interesting and and he he says he says we do this to live he says we can't we can't buy bread we can't get food and he says this is how we live and he says but this is free enterprise and i'm going totally different perspective on what we enjoy and take for granted on a daily basis and the very next day we're at the corner of of the neva river and nevsky prospect two of the major confluences in that town and i see a, a man in a tie-dyed american shirt with Levi's jacket and jeans selling stacking dolls on a corner off of a card table. And I told my photographer, Pete Cuellar, I said, let's go over there and talk to this guy. And uh, and when the camera came over, he wanted nothing to do with that camera. So I sent Pete across the street, and I kept the wireless microphone under my arm, and I talked to him. And I said, um, I said uh, how much are your dolls? And he told me how much are your dolls. I said, well, I'm going to buy two from you. So I bought two dolls from him, and I said, I said, when did you start selling this? He says, when I was laid off from the Army. And I said, laid off. He says, yeah, they don't have the money to pay us. He says, then let us go. And uh, and I said, do you like selling dolls? And he, I mean, stopped dead, froze. And he says, nobody tells me what to sell. Nobody tells me what to sell it for. And he says, this is the American dream. And I said, well, what, what do you intend to do? And, and at that time, there were a couple of Mercedes going tandem behind us, obviously some drug thugs or somebody going along. And he says, that. He says, I'm going to get enough money, and I'm moving to Germany, and I'm buying a Corvette. <laughs> I came away with a way to tell a story of, of the, the fall of the Soviet Union in a different way. Yeah. Most people thought it was the government crumbling and that we'd always been hated. I didn't find anything there to indicate to me that these people hated us. They revered us. They wanted to emulate us. They wanted the things we had and the way that we got them and the way that we communicated, the way we prayed, the way that we talked. And they wanted that. And they were getting it suddenly and didn't know how to handle it, to be quite frank. But that's how I communicated to the people. A lot of my brethren and other uh, at other channels were were talking about how the they were having trouble dis distributing food and all the problems they were having. Well, they were having plenty of problems, but that that happens when revolution happens, mm -hmm. right? What I wanted to capture is what was happening with the people. They were changing right before my eyes, or was it that I was changing before their eyes? They had been desiring this change for a long time, at least the people we ran into, and nobody directed us who to talk to. So we were talking to people who had been watching the United States, watching their own country, telling them how bad we were and everything, when in fact they knew the real score and right. they wanted some of it. Is the news today fake?
I mean, I, I base that based on what you just said because that is an excellent question. You, you really spoke with people and heard a whole different story. So, is it is it changed a lot? I think it's gotten lazy, and and to any of my brethren who are hearing this, I don't take great joy in saying what I'm about to say. But I think that what passes as news today is a convenience in between commercials. I spoke earlier about coming up on a burning house and doing a live shot for two minutes out in front of a burning house. Right. It's terrible that somebody's home's burned or business is burned. It's terrible. But does it affect somebody 40 miles to the west in Fort Worth or in Rockwall or in South Dallas if this happens to be a house that's burning and, uh, you know, just on the fringe of downtown? It's terrible that their house is burning, but the bottom line to it is that's not a real important story. Is it, impor- is it important that, that somebody is being chased down the road in a high-speed chase, or is it just period interest that they're able to fill a lot of airtime with without having to do a whole lot of, of, of thinking and using brain power to go after it? It is to do real reporting, to dig into things, to know what's going on at City Hall. I'll give you a classic example of how we have, have lost our mission and our focus in the news business. My daughter, who was a, a, an Oak Ridge student, was told, we've got to find out what's going on at Arlington City Hall. You need to find out what the, what, what the agenda is and what's being discussed and what's important on that. And so she was engaged in that process. And I was watching the Today Show as, we were, as I was getting ready to take her to school. And I was watching to get the temperature because I was too lazy to pick up my phone and go, hey, Siri, uh, you know, what is the temperature? <laughs> oh, she's just now answering. That's okay. I don't need that answer. <laughs> Well, well thank, thank you, you sir. Thank you. Okay. Uh, and she sees a fire in Dallas, another murder in Dallas, and then there was a huge traffic wreck on I-30 that was clogging up the traffic. And she says, and she turns to me, she says, Dad, is that what makes our town tick? And I said, no, that's drive-by news. That happens, and it doesn't take a lot of brain power to report it. And that, that's not taking a shot at the kids who are reporters and, and that today. But the point is there are fewer people chasing more hours in news, and they've got to fill it. And they have few people to spend the hourage necessary to do real investigative work. Uh, Scott Friedman does an excellent job at Channel 5 and his investigative work at Channel 5, and I praise him for, for what he has done. He is one of the few reporters who is allowed the kind of time necessary to research the stories, really vet it out well, structure his, his story in a way that people can understand it easily, and then gets the time to broadcast it, much longer than, than regular news stories, which are um, uh, 120 seconds long. If they're lucky, 90 seconds long is the average uh, for a packaged story. But a lot of stories go by, they're 15, 20 seconds. Bam, bam, bam. The idea is to keep the story count up. Your, your initial question was, is the news fake today? It's agenda-driven. So fake can be in the eyes of the beholder. But when I'm when I'm looking at cable news today, for example, and I'm watching the uh, I'm watching the ridiculous show that's going on in Washington D.C. over impeachment, and and for those of you who don't know, I'm a Republican. Yes, I ran as a Republican for tax assessor collector, so there's no surprise that that I'm talking as a Republican at the moment. But we have lost all perspective when CNN comes from a good news background, spends the balance of its broadcast day doing nothing but beating a drum for one side or the other. Uh, MSNBC does exactly the same thing. Fox, to, to, to its credit, does try to be somewhat more middle of the road, but they, they, they 
pound the drum on the other side of the issue. We have lost the sense of objectivity in our news. We have lost, I believe, our sense of, of and it's not lost. We don't demand from our news providers information that helps us make better decisions. Back when I was doing the news, not because we did it better than anybody else, but the the bottom line was we considered stories in that story lineup that made a difference to people in this community. Does this story uh, help them make a better decision? Doesn't it? Does it advance something? Did we discover something that they need to know? And that takes time. Sending a reporter right. to city council meetings, county commissioners but, meetings. But did technology change this because of the technology? No, technology gap? should have made it easier. That's what. Yeah, right. Right. Technology should have made the process of collecting news much easier. Instead, what we've done is use it as as an excuse to whittle the size of staffs down. And it's not so much that that it's a greed package by the corporate owners of our of our news providers. It's that they are stockholder driven too, right. just like a, a lot of companies uh, that are publicly held. You know, they're looking for the return on the on the dollar so that their their stockholders are happy, the CEOs happy, the employees are happy. But in the process out of this, I really believe we have lost our vision on what is considered to be news. Newsworthy. We used to get the newspaper in the morning, and then we had the second one that came in the afternoon. Exactly. And we had the Herald, and we had the morning yeah. news. We had two, and now it's like try to find a paper. Well, and the papers that are there actually are a poor excuse of a green sheet. I mean, they're, they're, they're community neighborhood papers uh, size. Take a look at what's happened to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. Right. The number of reporters dedicated to reporting here. In the courthouse, I could throw a rock today and not hit a reporter. There were times when there were reporters flooding every courtroom in that in that place, important cases that were being settled. You, you just the only way that they're there is if they get called and say, "But there's this there's this big trial going on, and you need to be down here." And the, they come down, or people who have a vested interest in the outcome of a trial, one way or the other, do a protest, do whatever it is that they say, want to haul yeah, people maybe down. Maybe a fight, show up down there, and maybe. well, it's eye candy. Exactly. That's eye candy yeah, to yeah. see out there on the street, people protesting that kind of thing. Uh, it's the same thing as, as for example, there was a story in the, and I'll, I'll do the Dallas Morning News. They're talking about these protesters out in front of Kay Granger's office, the the 12th Congressional District mm-hmm. Congresswoman from Fort Worth. They're out there protesting and getting to say, you've got to call and get her to vote for impeachment, of course, which you will never do. But the point is, it's a small group of people, and the way the story is told, it sounds like it's a massive street filled with protesters demanding action when it's not. We tend to amplify things that are not amplifiable, but yet because there is an agenda behind it, it's convenient because it serves our purpose. It concerns it, it, it serves our agenda. I hunger and thirst for the day that we finally go back to reassess what really is important to people to be provided as news. Now, if you doubt that people really want to know what's going on in their neighborhood, check the Pew studies that have been done. Pew did a story, uh, did a, a survey a couple of years ago asking this question. Who do you trust to deliver what you define as news? The choices were newspapers, radios, television, and social media like Facebook and Twitter, 51%. This was five, six years ago. 51% chose social media. 
Newspapers were the lope on the, on the group. Radio was two. Television was three. Here's the point that I'm trying to get to here. People are naturally curious about what's going on, not only around them, but with their neighbors, in their state. They're colloquial. They want to know what's going on around them. If you don't expend the effort to find out what's going on around you, instead of waiting for the news to come to you, whether it's a fire, it's a shooting, it's a traffic wreck, uh, oh my gosh, we've got ourselves a, a chase down Interstate 30, we've got 30 minutes we can cover with this sucker, just put the, put the chopper up and let's go and talk about it. And it's, it's serving nobody down in that traffic jam down there because guess what? They're not watching the television, right? you know, but if you doubt how important it is, check the television ratings. See what happens. Do you realize that if you added all of the cable news channels together on a daily basis with the number of people they serve, it is still a fraction of what one network television newscast is in the afternoon? How many people do you think are listening to CNN right now? Well, according to the ratings yesterday, it was about 660,000 people. That's coast to coast. Guess what? Last time I was on the air at Channel 5, my ratings were beyond that. Mm-hmm. In one city, check the ratings of who's number one in the in almost two to one over, the other, all, all, over all other cable news providers, and it's Fox. Well, there's a reason for that. When you beat a drum against anything and on one side and you don't even give the other side e- even, even a scintilla of attention, people go, you're biased. Regardless of whether they agree with you or not, right. they— uh, The American people are smart enough to make these decisions on their own. They know what's going on. Too many broadcasters treat them like like infant children, ignorant as as they can be easily led. I got news for you. I find viewers and listeners very intelligent over over the long haul. They know when you're fudging. They know when you're telling only one side of the story. And they used to hold you accountable for that. I I could— I saved a lot of my letters and things from back in the day. And if I didn't get half hate mail and half love mail, then I figured I wasn't doing my job. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I mean, we could sit here for like hours. Yeah. I could just, li- I mean, I know you don't think it's fascinating, but it is. I mean, I think it's, so. it's, it's intriguing to hear this, but it also sounds like there's hope, which is I think there's the- a lot of hope in our, and Bill, I think it's really important, you know, I come from a from a firmly rooted biblical family, and I believe you can't take any of this with us. I mean, we're sitting in these gorgeous offices, wearing nice clothes, driving nice cars, and you can't take any of that with us. If you're gone in the next moment, all that stays here. The only thing we can do as human beings is to leave this place a little better than what we found it, okay? And the only way that we do that is to pass those kind of values on to our progeny. Whenever we, whenever we get our children to understand that basic tenet in human existence is don't do it for yourself. Yes, you get to carry along with this, but do it for the next generation. The people that come behind you need to do better than you do, and the people who come behind them need to do better than that. That's what my father taught me was You've got to leave something behind that makes a difference in someone else's life because once you're gone, you're gone. You need to leave something on this earth that makes a difference to somebody else, whether it's making somebody feel good, providing something to somebody who doesn't have it and you have the ability to share. Whatever it is, leave this place a little better than what you found it. So the hope is there 
uh, I'm an eternal optimist. I believe that this is a cycle we're going through. I think that the next election will be very cleansing. I think 2020 is going to surprise a lot of people. And, and I think that this, this entire impeachment process is going to surprise a lot of people. Uh, whether you're pro or against it, I think you're going to be surprised on both sides. The American public, taken at large, is very resilient. And there are times in this country's history when an event causes people to come together and weld together and unify. This is not one of those times, but it's coming, I predict. 9-11, yeah. I watched a metamorphosis happen overnight. You know, uh, standing on that pile of rubble down there, uh, you know, we can't hear you, Mr. President. Well, I hear you, and soon the world will hear you. And that one phrase gelled this country together in uh, at that very, very moment. Ronald Reagan did it at, at the Berlin Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. There are various times when, when those kind of events transcend what is going on and people are shaken out of the fog of, uh, of, of their own importance and they go, oh, oh, maybe we should talk about this. Right. Maybe we shouldn't do a, new, a, a, a knee-jerk reaction to something. My hope is that this is a shakeout period. This is a time when we're learning that skewed news, uh, opinionated news, op uh, reporting opinion as fact, I believe that will be a passing fad. I think that at some time in our very near future that news reporting and storytelling that really considers things that are important. They can still be controversial, but tell both sides. Yeah. I think that day is coming, but not with the current folks that are there. I think that things are about to change. I can't, uh, and, and, and I've got no empirical proof of that. Only my gut is telling me that we cannot continue along the same path. This media-driven drum-pounding of the impeachment, for example, is dividing our country unmercifully. And I have a lot of friends who are Democrats, and I have a lot of friends who are Republicans, and, and they're at each other's throats right now. And that isn't the way that things get done. Right. I'll, I'll close this line of thought with the fact that I, I told you that I come from a, a, a Democratic father, grandfather, right? right? right. Uh, well, I come with a higher degree of, of pedigree on the other side. My great uncle was Carl Albert, the former Speaker of the U.S. House whose freshman year in Congress, his class included John Kennedy, Jim Wright, and Richard Nixon. Wow. Think about that, that, that power foursome, if you will. And it was Uncle Carl who called President Nixon on the morning before they took the impeachment vote, told him, Mr. President, I think you need to resign because they, they have the votes in the House and they are going to impeach you. And he did. He resigned. That was an act of civility, not of smugness. Something had really happened. That does not exist in this current atmosphere. There, there are no statesmen that are on television arguing right now. Those are their statement that exists somewhere in our society. Those people, I believe, are going to float to the top, Bill. I really believe that. I think that there, there are real journalists who are going to grab a hold of this apparatus and say, we need to look more seriously about what we're doing. We need to think seriously about what kind of information we're providing. What is it that people need to hear 
instead of what is convenient for us to gather and spoon-feed them as news. It's a tough job to do good reporting, and it should be looked upon like that and revered like that, and I think the day is coming. I'm not going to lie. I'm speechless. Yeah. I'm fascinated. I I can't thank you enough for coming in here and talking with us today. Oh, well. I I literally could sit here for hours and and hear different things. Walter Cronkite, Tom Brokaw, which one play golf with? <laughs> I didn't. Oh, which one would I want to play yeah, golf which one with? Would you want to? Uh, Walter? And and the reason is is I know Tom Brokaw. Okay. <laughs> and and uh, in fact, I I had a, a viewer who brought me a greatest generation belt buckle he had made, and I delivered it to Tom at, at the Republican National Convention. Yeah. And Tom is a I I can't say a good friend, but I but he and I know each other, and right. we've 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 had a long association. But Cronkite is somebody who I had, and this is another one of my little stories, and I'm probably dragging our time out here, but um, you remember back in the late 70s when uh, we imposed, when President Carter imposed the Russian grain embargo? Well, back then, there was, uh, I was working at Channel 11 in Houston, and there was a Russian freighter being held 12 inches off the dock, was not allowed to dock, and they were in station keeping 12 inches off the dock because the, uh, President Carter had forbid them to dock. And the local correspondent from the CBS Bureau in Dallas was not available. And so Travis Lynn calls me, who is the bureau chief, and he says, Snyder, he says, do you want to report on this Russian grain embargo for for, uh, Walter? And I'm going, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, I'm going, here's my golden ticket to New York. Right. Uh, That's back when I was still thinking in those terms. And so I go down there, and so for three days I reported with Travis Lynn as the producer down on the docks at, at, at Galveston with this Russian, and we were talking to the Russians across the, it was, a, it was a fascinating thing, but I also learned that I wasn't in control of my story. The producer was, and New York was in control. That was mm-hmm. my first taste of, you're the reporter, that's true, but we're going to tell you they wanted to adjust it this way, they wanted to say this, mm-hmm. and so... I did because I wanted to be a network reporter, and so I did exactly as I was told. Uh, I still got to do a real job there. But there's something about Walter Cronkite that just has fascinated me through the years. Uh, That's the way it is on, you know, this day in history. Uh, It's that Cronkite had an impact on people. For example, uh, when President Kennedy was killed. He showed humanity. He, he was a human while he was also a, a, a news broadcaster, okay? And he cried on the air. Right. He took his glasses off and cried. That one moment of humanity said everything you needed to know. This is important. The nation needs to mourn. Our president's been killed. Whether you liked him or not, he was our president, and he has been assassinated. Cronkite also was a a key player in President Johnson's demise. President Johnson is famous for quoting in the office when he was seeing that 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 Cronkite had said that this is an unwinnable war and and that that we need to withdraw. And President uh, Johnson was famously quoted, "Well, if I've lost Cronkite, I've lost the nation." That was profound for me. You can have an impact with the stories and the and, and the mix of stories that you tell. I think that's translatable into our everyday life, uh, talking with our neighbors, talking with our coworkers. All of that blends together in communication as to 
what's important? What is it that you talk about at the office? What is it that you talk about at church? What is it you talk about at your school organizations? What's important? And and if you trivialize those conversations, that trivializes, from my perspective, your life. You have an opportunity to influence people. You have an you have an opportunity to participate with people. If you have that opportunity to participate, you have the opportunity to bring joy to people and to yourself. It's those people who ostracize themselves and decide to isolate themselves uh, that actually are the ones who are in the uh, on the losing end of that equation. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people said social media was going to cloister people in rooms and they would never communicate. It's done exactly the opposite. Social media has connected people in a way that they could have never been connected before. Although I think at times it's it, it has gone astray and, and, and things do that. But uh, for the most part, and this is going back to Cronkite, I would watch Cronkite every day that he was still on the air. I don't know if it was his voice or his, 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 the way that he pulled the content out, but Uncle Walter was just that. He was Uncle Walter. You felt comfortable. You could sit down. And I hope that sometime during my years on television that people felt comfortable watching me deliver the news, telling them things that are going on, uh, not trying to influence them one way or another, but go, hey, here's what's going on. You guys need to make a decision on this. Here are the facts. You decide. And it sounds like Fox News, but uh, you know, the, the point is that's what I felt like when I watched Walter Cronkite. It was the golden era. That's right. Uh, and I, I hope that in some way I emulated that particular approach when I was on the air. I hope people think I was fair and balanced. I think they do. I think your 30 years, it speaks volumes to that. And, and I, I know I watched you all the time prior to actually knowing you. <laughs> and so you did. There's a comfort level. And, and I can tell you people do. And I, I say thank you. So and, and thank, you, thank you again for coming. Do you know Mark Cuban, by the way? I do. Do you personally? I may, I may have found someone on a personal Mark Cuban name. is kind of an interesting fact. Uh, Mark, uh, we in, have to in talk, the early, we have to talk in, about this yeah. off air here. Well, in the early days of the Mavericks, when uh -huh. he when he took over, he he became kind of not a regular, but an a, an occasional sparring master with Jane and I. Okay. Okay. And at one time, Jane and I were talking on the air, and we were talking about how Mark Cuban wouldn't know how to how how to do a Dairy Queen uh, cup or, oh, or, yeah. or a cone. Yeah. Right. I remember this. Okay. Yeah. So he challenged Jane to show up at a Dairy Queen and serve with him. And so she took him up and did it. Yeah. And uh, I, I, could, I, I have a whole book full of things about Mark Cuban. Yeah. But um, Mark Cuban is a good entrepreneur, not just a good. He's a great entrepreneur. Yes, I mean, here, he, he's made himself a billionaire not off of luck but hard work. Right. Uh, the grist that goes into that mill is, is, is definitely producing some great flour. Mm -hmm. So – I've had good experiences with Mark Cuban, and then I've had some rough ones over 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 politics. But right. to but to but overall, that's what America's about, Bill. The best thing that we can do is, God, can you imagine how boring it would be if we all agreed with each other? Oh. Can you imagine how awful it would be if everybody had just the same <laughs> idea? God, we'd make no progress in this world. I enjoy Mark's different opinions and his different approach. Well, I may have to may have to hit you up to put a tweet out there to him or something. Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I want to get him on here. I want to. Uh, our, our growing up backgrounds are very similar in how, yeah. from an entrepreneurial side, we both did very right. similar things. Unfortunately, 
uh, he made the right turn and landed the right way, and I didn't go that way. But uh, well, he's a legitimate guest. Maybe you can bring him over here and sit in here and really tell you some Mike, stuff. Mike, I I really do appreciate your time and thank you. Really could sit here for hours with you and listen. Well, you're to very stuff. kind. So I've had a great much. time, Bill. Thanks for having. Thank me. you very much. Absolutely, this was a blast. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, Tyler. Absolutely, thank you, Mike. I, this was unreal for me just to get sit here and listen. Was 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 great. He's so. an icon right here. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm telling you, I, I'm I an official listened. fossil now. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, no, I don't, I don't. I don't think so in, in the least bit. But uh, Bill, for people that want to uh, listen to more episodes, they can always go to Spotify, iTunes, check out uh, the other. I think episodes it's out there on there. Google Podcast yeah. or something now. I don't know who else. All is of that. the different uh, outlets. Wherever That's you right. get your podcast. That's right. Wherever exactly. you get that. Exactly. But please subscribe and follow along. Appreciate that. Yep, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks, everybody.